0: Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is the podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode, will take a deep dive into the latest work published in the journal Behavior Analysis in Practice by interviewing each paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of the paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask after reading it. Hey everyone, welcome back to BAPCAST. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Solvay-Regina University. And today I'm going to be speaking with Eric Dubuque about his paper, The Misclassification of Behavior Analysts. How National Provider Identifiers Fail to Adequately Capture the Scope of the Field. Dr. Eric Dubuque is the Vice President of Accreditation with the Council of Autism Service Providers, otherwise known as CASP. In his role, he oversees CASP's industry-wide accreditation system designed to promote quality care for individuals with autism. Eric is a former assistant professor with over a decade of experience coordinating three graduate training programs in applied behavior analysis domestically and internationally. His professional, voluntary, and scholarly activities have all centered around quality control and the training and application of behavior analysis. As an accreditation administrator, expert witness, licensure board chair, and consultant, ERIC has shaped legislation, regulations, and policies designed to protect the public and increase access to effective and ethical applied behavior analytic services for individuals with autism. ERIC is a former U.S. Peace Corps volunteer from Kenya, four-time recipient of the Faculty Favorite Award at the University of Louisville and is a past recipient of the Bazemore Edwards and Warner Award for his leadership promoting social justice issues for the LGBTQ community. Eric currently lives in Louisville, Kentucky with his wife, son and two dogs. He enjoys playing, relaxing with his family, programming in his spare time and reading. I'm really excited to share my interview with Eric. I think his paper was, uh, when I read it initially, shocking and, and quite interesting, and I think you'll all enjoy the interview. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Eric Dubuque. Hello, Eric, and welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Cody. I appreciate being being here.
0: We're excited to have you and to hear about your paper. Before we jump into it, we love hearing about our guests and and learning about their background. Would you mind telling us a little bit about kind of what you do and and what got you there?
1: Sure, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Louisville in the Special Education, Early Education and Prevention Science Department. Um, Over there, I coordinate the Autism and Applied Behavior Analysis graduate training program. And so you'd also ask what I, how I ended up where, I, where I'm at. Yeah. So, um, so I first learned about behavior analysis as an undergraduate at Westfield State College, although now it's referred to as Westfield State University. And at the time I was interested in why people did the things that they did. And I was taking a lot of philosophy courses and psychology courses that weren't making a lot of sense. And then I took a class with uh, Dr. Roger Tudor, um, who was over there and he taught uh, some behavior, anal- behavior analysis coursework. And it just clicked, as it does yeah. for so many of us. Yeah. Um, and so I knew I wanted to be a behavior analyst. Um, and so I finished up my undergraduate over there. And before I went to graduate school, I decided to join the US Peace Corps to kind of see how other people around the world lived. And so I lived in Kenya uh, for two years as a public health volunteer. Hmm. And that was a wonderful experience. And then I went to the University of Nevada, Reno, where I studied under Drs. Uh, Ramona Humanfar and Drs, Dr. Linda Hayes. Um, where I primarily focused on human operant laboratory research um, before moving to Louisville, Kentucky, where I was a faculty member at Spalding University and coordinated their graduate program and then moved over to the University of Louisville, where I currently reside.
0: What led you to being interested in the university arena and doing the EAB type research?
1: Actually, I'm glad you asked that. So I remember at the time when I was an undergrad, they, um, they didn't really have web pages. And so the old graduate training directories, and maybe I'm making myself sound a little older than <laughs> I should, but they were paper based. Uh, do you remember those? Yeah. Oh, did, yeah. Did you see those? Yeah. And so I remember flipping through them as I think it was a junior, uh, trying to find a behavior, an- behavior analysis graduate training program. And uh, Dr. Humanfar and Hayes' uh, work in the philosophical domain really interested me. And I, I want to go there. Nice. Uh, and I knew I wanted to go there. And when I went to Kenya as a Peace Corps volunteer, I actually brought this big sack full of behavior analysis textbooks with me because uh, there's a lot of time to read, nice. and that was the majority of the weight on the on the plane. And <laughs> in fact, it was I was able to get through you know all those textbooks. I'm not sure how much I understood without the formal graduate training at the time. Um, nice. But it was a wonderful experience, and I really appreciated uh, how much I was able to learn over in that program over in Reno.
0: That's
1: awesome. Just out of curiosity, what was your dissertation on? Sure. Uh, so my dissertation was actually on racing or reducing racing during online instruction, hmm. which is very relevant these days. <laughs> and so what, what I liked about, uh, the dissertation is my primary dimension that I was tracking was response latency, hmm. which is kind of cool because that's a dimension you don't oftentimes see in studies. And so since the study was run online, I was able to collect some really accurate data related to latency. And we we're looking at using essentially like a timeout procedure. Um, so if you're going too fast through a lesson and you're answering incorrectly, it essentially forced you to pause. And we we're looking to see if that would reduce racing in students who were exposed to various questions.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah, very timely study. I'm gonna have to look at your, your dissertation uh, for use now with, with COVID instruction. That, that sounds amazing. Thank you. So going from EAB background, what led you to be interested in the national provider identification or identifier and doing this, the research related to this paper?
1: Yeah, sure. So, you know, what was kind of wonderful about once again, the training at Reno is they do have a comprehensive background. So we got some really good training in the philosophy, the experimental and the applied domains of our field. Mm -hmm. And as you know, the vast majority of us work in service delivery, so more kind of the applied domain. And so I remember, um, you know, when I moved to Kentucky, um, I was trying to become more involved in, you know, what was going on with the practice of ABA in Kentucky. And um, I ended up on the licensure board a few years ago. And while serving on the licensure board, I also served on our our complaints subcommittee. And we received a complaint from somebody out in the community who was concerned about somebody practicing ABA in the state without a license. And so I said, well, that falls within our domain. Let's check that out. And I started looking into the individual who had a complaint against them. And they ended up falling into an area of exemption for our licensure law but it got me thinking because as I was researching them, I came across, you know, their name listed in the NPI directory underneath this behavior analyst taxonomy. And so I was like, well, that's kind of strange because it doesn't appear this person has a BACB certificate and they're certainly not licensed with us, yet they have this behavior analyst title through their NPI taxonomy. And so I started thinking, I wonder if this is a common issue and, you know, I looked into it a little bit further and I found out that the, the NPI file um, is publicly available. It's eight gigabytes, so it's huge. And so it's not something you can download and just open up on Microsoft Excel. You need a specialized program uh, to open it. I used a program called CSV Explorer, although there are other options, and started looking at it and doing some just preliminary checks. And I started, my eyes started getting wider and wider at some of the results I was seeing when I was comparing who was registering under that taxonomy against the number of providers um, that are listed in the BACB certificate registry mm-hmm. across states. And so I started diving into it a little bit further with, and I pulled my colleagues, Dr. Marissa Yingling and Dr. Alan Alday. Um, Alan Alday is from uh, the University of Kentucky and Dr. Yingling is my colleague in social work at the University of Louisville.
0: That's amazing. I. I'm not surprised that that's the backstory to lead to this paper. And I've got to tell you, when I started reading the paper and I, I'm familiar with, with the MPI system, I, I have a MPI, uh, and obviously I'm a licensed behavior analyst and, and getting the correspondence there. But I never, I didn't pay very much attention to you know, the requirements when I'm saying I'm a behavior analyst or anything like that. And when I started reading this paper, I really felt like I was reading like an expose, like a, like a spotlight from the Boston Globe like paper. And obviously it's a different format and, and you're highly technical, like, like we need to be in, in, in academic journals. But it had that feel of, I, like I'm turning the page, like what's going on? Like how bad is this situation? It really, really gave me that feeling. And I have graduate students and colleagues read the papers to help me prepare for the podcast. And they all said the same thing. It, it was it was a page turner learning about this issue and, and how concerning it really can be. And so um, you, I think, gave a really nice introduction to the, the paper in the sense that you were looking at the correspondence between MPIs and, and or NPIs claiming to be behavior analysts. And if that aligns with BACV credentials and licensing, can you talk a little bit about uh, the, the overlap between those two and why it would be an issue if someone is claiming to be a behavior analyst on an MPI
1: when in fact they're not credentialed to the BACV or licensed. Yeah, I appreciate you describing it as like an expose because I felt I was writing one when we were working on it. I was like, oh <laughs> man, this is this seems kind of crazy, and I had to keep checking my numbers. Um, and I I, I thought you also made an interesting statement about not really paying attention to your NPI because I don't think most people do. Right. Um, when you when you get your NPI, um, when you get that identifier there, you don't you, you you never change it. It follows you around forever. Like that's just your identifier. And I remember getting mine when I worked for an organization while I was still in graduate school. And I think they had the administrative staff sign me up. I didn't even do anything. Um, and I never looked at it really again until I started looking at this paper. I was like, oh, oh yeah, I have this. I had forgotten all about it. Um, and I think that's probably a common experience for a lot of people. Um, you kind of get an NPI because you're supposed to. Um, and we don't really pay attention to it after that because there's no requirements for you to update and there's no system of verification um, or complex system of verification. I think the NPI system, MPPES MP, or the Centers for Medicaid, um, they... Verify the business address, um, and I think that's pretty much about it. But they don't look to see whether you have the credentials that you're claiming through your taxonomies, for example. Um, and in terms of in terms of the comparison here, um, what we did was pull the NPI file because there are three taxonomies that are relevant to the practice of behavior analysis. So when you go to apply for an NPI, you list out you know your business address, you know where your place of birth, all kinds of information related to your practice. And then you select uh, these codes that dictate or describe the type of practice or specialty that you engage in, that you're trained in. And in behavior analysis, we have three codes that are relevant to our practice. And those codes are behavior technician, assistant uh, assistant behavior analyst, and behavior analyst. And those codes kind of correspond with our levels of credentialing we have there.
0: That makes sense. Now,
1: <clears throat> In 2008, that's when the first behavior analyst taxonomy was put in place, and it was put in place by the BACB, the Behavior Analyst Certification Board, who filed an application with the organization NUC, which is a National Uniform Claims Committee, um, and they filed an application with them to establish a taxonomy. And in that initial taxonomy, there it was written fairly broadly, where just about anybody who kind of played around with behavior, worked with behavior, could have registered underneath that taxonomy. Um, and then in 2016, the Association for Professional Behavior Analysts um, submitted an update to NUC. And in that update in 2016, they said, well, you need to have a BAC, BCBA credential or certified Behavior analyst credential, or you need to be licensed to practice to apply behavior analysis in, in a state, right? Um, They also submitted two other applications that established the assistant behavior analyst and the behavior technician taxonomies. The assistant behavior analyst taxonomy required the BCABA credential or a license. The technician taxonomy did not require a registered behavior technician credential or an RBT credential, but it did require that they be supervised by somebody with the BCBA or that had you know, a relevant state license to practice ABA. So for our study, we ended up looking at three different databases or three different sets of databases, I should say. The first thing we had to do is we had to determine um, which licensees or how many of the, or what percentage of licensees actually have a BACB credential. Hmm. And that was a very, very time-consuming process um, because once again, the taxonomy specifies that you you can be have a BCBA or you can have a state license to practice ABA and so there are some states 14 at the time when we wrote this um, that did allow folks without a BCBA to get that licensed behavior analyst uh, licensure in that in 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 that state and so we had to go and we had to pull the licensure, licensure registries from all those different states and they all have different processes
0: I've Some of them are
1: freely
0: available, the, very easy to download. Yeah, I was going to say, I've, I've looked at the different licensing, just to understand the regulations in each state, and much less try to get access to the data associated with those. That in and of itself, <laughs> the, the labor required for that has to be, had to have been so labor intensive and so time consuming.
1: It took a little while and, you know, so, some states freely available uh, some states, you had to pay a small fee to get access to the registry and then some states like New York required filing a Freedom of Information Act request. Mm. So it kind of ranged the gamut. But once we once we had those those names we were able to cross reference them with the BACB certificate certificate registry to see how many of these licensees have, you know, have a BCBA certificate and <clears throat> Once we did that, we're able to determine, and I think it was about 97% of licensees um, are assumed to have a BACB certificate. So essentially, if you are licensed, you probably also, there's a very, very strong likelihood that you also have a BACB credential. Hmm. That's kind of the results in a nutshell there, which and is kind did, of what we anticipated, but we wanted the data to back it up. That makes sense.
0: And how did how exactly did you find the the correlation between the two groups? Did like I know you talked about a, a, a software package, but could you could you walk us through that that process a little bit?
1: Sure. For the for the so for the licensure registries, we pulled we pulled all the directory information and usually includes folks' names, you know maybe where their business address is and whatever their licensure number is, um, and then we essentially went through we tried to do a name match um, with the certificate registry. So if you were mm-hmm. looking, for example, at Rhode Island, where you are, you'd have a list of all the BA, BA, BCBAs in Rhode Island, uh, and you could pull their names from there. And we did a name match with all the licensees, you know, in that particular state. And you guys don't have licensure in Rhode Island, do you? We do have licensure in you Rhode do. Island. Yep. Yeah, so, you, so if you had that state, then you'd make a direct comparison there across. Now, what ended up happening is obviously you're not always going to have a name match. And right. so when we didn't have name matches, then we went through each name that did not match and we we conducted Google searches to determine whether there was any evidence for like a you know a name change or anything else. And it was a very labor-intensive wow. process. Um, if we found evidence, um, if we didn't find strong evidence one way or another, we we erred on the side of being more conservative and we just said, this person may have it, but we're going to say no, um, just to keep, you know, just to be as conservative as possible okay. because sometimes you had name changes, but a lot of people, you know, will publish on on this or they'll list their main name or, right. um, or place of business. So we were, we were able to, I think, come up with a pretty conservative estimate. Um, but it was, it was a pretty intense process trying to make those, those uh, comparisons.
0: I can imagine.
1: Would that, would the,
0: name correspondence check was that was that part of the s- software package that was doing that or i can't imagine you were doing that by hand i did by- do
1: that by hand that that was a uh, <laughs> that was a, the software package was me for that
0: and Wow. So I've,
1: uh, I've i've become a bit of a wizard in excel over the past few years in, in terms of playing with different different tables and databases so once the information is in, in excel essentially it's running a lot of formulas hmm. and a lot of find and replace to try to pull out First names and last names and then coming up with formulas to make comparisons across the col- different columns gotcha. and I think I'm getting a little bit too nerdy here but um, well I think it, <laughs> yeah I think it paints the picture
0: for perspective for, for those who haven't quite read the paper yet to see some of the, the raw numbers could you give us a general ballpark of how many different names you're, you're ultimately having to check for this
1: project well For the, for the NPI folks, I think there was around, uh, and I apologize, I'm actually trying to do an update on this. So I'm I'm trying to give you the information from two years Mm -hmm. ago versus now. I think there's around 50,000 or 49,000 folks in the NPI file that we're looking at. Um, And then, you know, at the time, I think we was there like 30,000 or something like that, BCBAs that we were trying to com- compare to. There's much fewer licensees right now, although those are certainly growing. Right. Um, usually the automa- the automated processes that we set up and the automated formulas took care of most of it. Okay. Um, and so there was, but it still left like, you know, a few hundred that we had to go through um, and kind of check manually, uh, which was a bit time consuming. And like <laughs> I said, we were pretty conservative on that. If If we really did not find any evidence or we didn't find strong evidence, we just said, we're not going to count that. But even with that, that conservative approach is still indicated 97% at the BCBA or or the graduate level, uh, BCBA or graduate level license.
0: Right. And you said that was expected, right? You expected to see a high correspondence between BCBAs and licensed behavior analysts. And then you went on to your next step.
1: Exactly. So once we had that, what we were, what we are able to do is we said, okay, look, these are our BCBAs. And then we also have this smaller, you know, number of folks who appear to be licensed, but do not appear to have, you know, a BACB credential. And that group together, we're going to call those like, you know, credential, graduate level credential providers, okay. ADA providers. And so so that was our list of folks who have the requirements that are specified or described in the taxonomy, the behavior analyst taxonomy, right? The next step was to pull the NPI file. And the NPI file, as I mentioned, it's a comma separated value file. It's publicly available, anybody can download it, Uh, but it's eight gigabytes now. I think at the time it was 7.2 gigabytes and I did this two years ago. And we used a program called CSV Explorer, which downloads, you know, millions upon millions of rows into this program. And then in that program, I was able to filter out across just those three taxonomies that are related to behavior analysis. And so I pulled out, you know, all the other allied health professions and medical professions. We we pulled out that data because it wasn't relevant to our project. And once we were able to filter those out, we had a file that was manageable and we actually could begin running pivot tables and formulas in Excel.
0: Nice. Um,
1: and how we many, compared-
0: did, did you get a sense of how many gigs were left when with just the three uh, corresponding titles related to behavior analysis?
1: Um, I would have to look at that again. That's I think. okay. Let me see. Yeah, I think um, I'm, I'm briefly glancing right now at my files. I think it was around 50,000 megabytes or something like that. It did cut it down quite a bit because behavior analysts represent as a whole, a small percentage of the total healthcare provider population, I think. That makes sense. So it was much, much smaller than the eight gigs. <laughs> Thank goodness for that.
0: So when you started looking at, you were able to get the, the NPIs or the, the credentials the three credentials related to behavior analysis within the
1: NPIs, and then what did you do next? So once once we had the two data sets, so we had all the NPIs, and so essentially these are all the folks that uh, claimed one of those taxonomies, right? And we wanted to compare those folks against the people who had the BCBA credentials across states, right? And so what we did is, once again, I think this is a very conservative approach. Um, what we, what we, the assumption we made was that, and I'm just gonna talk about BCBAs if that's okay, although we did do this at the undergraduate level. Yeah. So what we did was we all BCBAs, for example, in Rhode Island and the number of BCBAs in Rhode Island, we compared that number against the number of healthcare providers registering underneath the behavior analyst taxonomy in Rhode Island. And okay. then we just directly compared those, right? And so now that assumption, the reason why that's a very conservative assumption is because it assumes all BCBAs in Rhode Island have an MPI, which isn't true (laughs) uh, because not all behavior analysts work in healthcare, right? Right. But we were trying to come up with as conservative as an estimate as possible.
0: That makes sense. In
1: fact, if you look at some of the job analysis uh, survey data published on the certification board's website, um, it looks like they, uh, I think at the time they had published results from their 2016 survey. And I think there was about 80% that we estimated um, of certified behavior analysts that worked in healthcare. Mm. And so if you took an 80% number, um, then really the problem jumps quite, it's it's quite a bit bigger. So for example, our paper found that there's about 20,000 healthcare providers in the U.S. that do not meet the credentialing requirements that are specified in the, in the taxonomy description. Wow. Um, and that's with that conservative estimate. If you, if you only take 80%, then the issue becomes it's around 30,000. If we're talking percentages, what that means is the NPI database um, overestimates our, our provider population by about 40%, which is huge. And without the conservative estimate, it's about forty-nine percent. And so, it's uh, the NPI data data set um, is not a very good representation of which providers are actually qualified according to the descriptions in there. And I shouldn't say qualified; I should say meet the credentialing requirements in the taxonomy.
0: Right. That's that's appalling. When we we were looking at the numbers in the in the paper. So you said it's about 40% of the people who claim to be behavior analysts as their NPI are not BCBAs
1: or licensed behavior analysts. Is that correct? Right. So it's, yeah, so 20,000 20, healthcare providers in the U.S., which overestimates our provider population by 40%. That, and
0: <laughs> That's like a gut <laughs>
1: drop moment. That's horrifying. Yeah, and you know what's 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 it's too bad about it is it's not like our numbers are represented widely across other you know federal databases. Right. Like this is one of the only federal databases that actually compares our numbers against other healthcare providers, right, and other 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 providers. And so, if you look, for example, like in the Bureau of Labor Statistics maintained by the federal government, behavior analysis is not listed on there. Although hopefully that will change real soon um and so we're not in federal data and one of the only places where we are is the npi data set which is very very incorrect so one of the few ways that people maybe beyond
0: the field can really look to check to see if someone's a behavior analyst is something that's
1: extremely extremely inaccurate it sounds like right and so you know some of the there's i think there's a, a few different implications on this um, you know, one of, the, one of the major implications has to do with um, these websites that appear to draw from the MPI file. Because once again, I said that's publicly available and there's no charge to access it. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of websites that are out there. Um, and you probably have seen some of these, you have like a health grades, HIPAA space, MPI profile, um, Medlio. Um, and these are like automated websites that pull information from the MPI file so it will automatically generate a web page for you if you have an MPI number. Gotcha. Right. And so, and there's, you know, like 10, 10, or so of these different organizations at least that are out there. And so, and it's automatically generating web pages for all of these providers that underneath this taxonomy. Oh. And on some, some of these websites, it'll list the taxonomy at the very top it will say behavior analyst. A behavior analyst is somebody who has a certification or license to practice ABA. And then it'll give a list of providers who meet that, who, who supposedly meet that description. Um, and it's not necessarily very accurate. Yeah. Um, so so the, uh, the, the other thing that we found that was kind of interesting is the problem is not uniform across states. Hmm. There's a lot of variability in terms of the states that are impacted. So for example, in California, at least 48% of providers registered as behavior analysts do not meet the taxonomy credentialing requirements, so about half. In Florida and Washington, at least 63% of providers did not meet the credentialing requirements. Uh, In Oklahoma and Nevada, 94% and 96% did not meet the credentialing requirements. Uh, What I thought was kind of interesting about that particular statistic is um, Oklahoma and Nevada were the first states that established licensure for behavior analysts, um, like two weeks after one another. I remember I was in Nevada when a licensure came on board. And I don't think it had anything to do with the NPI issue because I don't think this has been discussed uh, before. So it's, uh, it is interesting watching, you know, how it's impacted the different states
0: It's horrifying. The listeners aren't going to be able to see that my jaw is currently on the ground. (laughs) And and I had already read the paper. I'm already familiar with the stuff. But to hear you say it again and talk about Nevada being over 90%. Now, do you have any hypotheses as to why there would be uh, such a large difference between the NPIs and the credentialed behavior analysts? Do you know why people would be registering under an NPI that would be inappropriate or inaccurate?
1: Yeah. So, you know, it was just something we talked about in in the paper. And so first of all, I don't think people are purposely malevolently going out of their way to try to register for a taxonomy that, you know, they don't technically qualify for Uh, instead. I actually think there's, you know, I think there's uh, systemic problems with the NPPES system, which is where you register for your NPI um, that don't really set the contingencies for successfully selecting the taxonomy that best fits your practice. And so there's a few different reasons um, why we might have this issue. One, uh healthcare providers may have met the requirements prior to 2016. So I mentioned that, you know, prior to, in between 2008 and 2016, the taxonomy description was much broader, right? And so it allowed for folks who didn't have these credentials to still qualify under that taxonomy. Um, but you know, when we, we add, well, there's a, there's a graph in our paper that shows that that doesn't account for everybody. Cause in fact, even after 2016, the problem got worse. Um, but you know, that could account for some of the folks, it could be that the code descriptions, the taxonomy code descriptions, descriptions, they're not available during the NPI application process. Mm. And so, and that's kind of disheartening, right? So when you're selecting your taxonomy, you know, you're just given a list of titles of the taxonomy and the, the, the number for it, or the identifier. But it doesn't say, it doesn't, say what, it doesn't specify on the website you know, what you need to have to select that taxonomy. And so, you know, if you are going through and you're like, well, oh, I work with behavior, which you know, many of us do, whether you're a behavior analyst or not, it's like that, you know, I analyze behavior and you might select that. Um, there's also no system to verify appropriate selection of taxonomies. And so there's, there's nothing on the, on the back end there where uh, the CMS will go through and check to see whether your selection is correct. Uh, there's also no incentives or penalties for updating MPI information. And so you're instructed, if you were to change your place of business or your, you know, your specialty, then you're supposed to update your MPI file or your profile within 30 days. And you know, I'm sure many of us are not doing that. Um, because you know who's heard about NPIs, right? Um, so I don't think that's happening. Um, there's also a provider might be trained in behavior analysis, but might not be credentialed. So they may believe that you know, well, I do behavior analysis, and you know, this is fits what I do, and so I'm going to select this. Sort of like um, behavior it, behavior specialists in schools.
0: The sort of those terms or those, I guess, uh, occupations
1: that seem similar to behavior analysts without the training. Yeah. and that could be it. you know s- schools represent an inter- interesting category here because uh, if you work in schools you know you're in the education industry you wouldn't necess- you wouldn't need number but but you know there's other professions out there like maybe marriage and family therapists who may have had some training in behavior analysis and may believe that that is a specialty that best fits what they do um, and it may be that some providers may deem the code that they select re- is relatively unimportant and it doesn't really matter. And So they kind of just, okay, this is the first one that pops up. Behavior is kind of high up on that alphabetical list. And so they select that. Wow. But ultimately we, we don't, we don't know for sure.
0: That's probably a combination. When you said just a minute ago, you said that after 2016, the problem got worse. And I'm, I assume that means that the disparity between people claiming to be behavior analysts in the MPI and, and actually being credentialed grew larger, which I would have assumed would have been the opposite, considering the number of behavior analysts in our field is skyrocketing and has been skyrocketing since 2016. So the number of behavior analysts entering the field doesn't seem to be changing
1: the that ratio. Is that correct? Um, So what what, what you're seeing is you're you're certainly seeing a growth in the number of behavior and offset are credentialed, and there's also an equivalent growth um, and an an even greater growth in the number of people who are claiming that taxonomy without meeting their credentialing requirements. That's unbelievable. Um, Yeah. You know, I I recently, last month, I downloaded the MPI file because we're trying to work on a a follow-up investigation on this paper. And I have some preliminary data, which indicates, I mentioned earlier, 20,000, I think, is uh, the number over 20,000 that did not meet the credentialing requirements. It's about 24,000 now, about two years later. Um, The percentage is about the same, though. So at least under preliminary analyses, and I still need to dive in. It looks like the problem is about the same, but it's certainly still a a problem, and it's still, still present.
0: That is... (laughs) gut-wrenching it it, i would i would have thought that maybe one of the solutions would have been adding more behavior analysts out there as as a i suppose sort of a a naive assumption of to fix this issue of people claiming to be behavior analysts or having providers who aren't behavior analysts just add more behavior analysts to the world. And that's going to help reduce that issue a little bit. It doesn't seem like that's helping really at all. So what are some of the potential solutions to this issue? <laughs>
1: I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> um, you know, it's, 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 there's, there's systemic problems, I think with the MPPS system, where you apply for an MPI number, you know, what's interesting is the NPI system actually even listed the behavior analyst taxonomy incorrectly when I started this project. Mm. And so they listed in the application process as behavioral analyst, which, you know, we've, we've all seen that, yeah. that term used with, with, with our, with our practice. And so I actually emailed the folks who run the system and they fixed it. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I know it was kind of cool. <laughs> I was like, Oh, neat. Somebody on the other end of the email, um, yeah. but they, um, you know, I, I think there, if there were some things done on their, on their end, simple things, for example, like including the description, the taxonomy descript when you're applying, I think that would be really useful. Um, and I don't know if that will ever happen. Um, we have had, you know, there does seem to be a call for well, what can behavior analysts do? And, you know, should we be talking about this in our ethics? I mean, sure. Talk about MPI numbers in your ethics classes, but it's not really an issue necessarily with providers in our field. It's like the wrong population. So right. the certification board, for example, uh, came out with a, a piece in their newsletter in 2019, where they talked about MPI MPI numbers and updating the importance of updating your information. And that's great, but you're a little bit preaching to the choir at that point. Right. It's kind of, you know, the issue seems to be with other outsiders, you know, kind of staking their, their flag into our, into our field um, and kind of running with it. So You know, I think um, I don't think you're naive to think that having more behavior analysts, um, more certified behavior analysts would eventually address the issue. Because I think as our profession becomes more well known, maybe it will cause folks to pause before they select that taxonomy when submitting their, you know, for their their NPI there. So
0: that would make sense. But I don't, I, yeah. Do you feel like... Have you shared this information with the NPI with the system or the administrators of the NPI?
1: No, I have shared it with the certification board and I have shared it with the Association for Professional Behavior Analysis because I thought, you know, some of our main organizations over there who have previously applied and shared applications, especially for establishing these taxonomies, um, might be interested, you know, kind of taking the lead on some of these things. What was kind of funny when I was working on this, as you know, with our ethical code of conduct, if you see somebody who is claiming, you know, a credential in behavior analysis, you're supposed to report them to the certification board. And so I remember thinking, okay, BACB, there's 20,000 people plus who are claiming this credential. Um, I think that might be a record somewhere.
0: I was going to say, turning in 20,000 people for an ethics violation at
1: once has to be a record. Exactly what I was thinking. What's kind of funny about it is we actually do have their information too, because we have their names and their places of business. I'm not sure how updated that information is, but it is accessible. There is something that potentially the state licensure boards could do, and it might be a state licensure issue mm. where, you know, cause they would have a smaller piece to be able to pull from and be able to follow up with running a mailing campaign or something like that, because we do have addresses. Once again, I don't think they've been updated. So I don't know how, you know, how effective that would necessarily be. And there's no consequences. So I can send somebody like a letter, like, hey, your taxonomy is incorrect. But the NPPS system is, you know, okay, <laughs> sorry. And like, maybe I'll get to it at some point to, to, to update. Um, what I did find challenging about writing this paper, though, was kind of what are the implications of these results? Yeah, And, you know, we, um, we kind of, we kind of struggled to think about like, okay, we have very limited data sets that include, you know, information about behavior analysis in comparison to other healthcare professions. Um, And it seems to be inaccurate. Why is that important? Mm. Right? So why, it sounds shocking to us, (sighs) like, my God, we're being overestimated. But from a practical perspective, why is that important? And I think we identified, I think we talked a little bit about one of the reasons why that's important is, number one, I think those web pages, where if you think about it, you have 20,000, at least 20,000 people um, who are indirectly claiming a credential to practice ABA through their taxonomies. And you have these websites that are being automatically generated with that information. If you have even like five of those companies, that means there's like 100,000 web pages that have incorrect information on them. And so if you're a cl- if you're a parent or caregiver, and you've heard like, oh, I need to find somebody who has a credential to practice ABA or a BCBA, and they're Googling folks, well, that might be one of the first things that pops up and they may believe that their provider actually has a credential that they may not have. Right. The other other major issue, and this is the one we're kind of investigating right now, has to do with network adequacy. Mm. Um, And I think this could potentially be a pretty big issue. Um, And it's difficult to determine because each state and each funder determines network adequacy in a different way. And that information is not always publicly available. But think about it this way, if I'm, a, if I'm an insurance company and I'm using NPI data to determine you know, the adequacy of my network in terms of the number of providers that have expertise to you know, use ABA or to, to, to provide ABA services, and I'm using that incorrect data set, that might have implications in terms of how these companies are negotiating rates within network providers and out-of-network providers.
0: I mean, some people would say, yeah, but, you know, for parents, you know, sure, they see them on like an NPI website, but they'll be able to check to see if they're licensed or if they're a BCBA or even at the state level when making sort of funding decisions. Well, they can check the number of BCBAs. The issue is that non-behavior analysts don't necessarily know what the important credentials are. They don't necessarily know what the BACB is and the different credentials associated with that. They may not know that behavior analysts have licensure and, and, you know, specific States. And so they're looking at a government run credentialing process that you would hope would be pretty reliable and trustworthy. And it doesn't seem to be the case.
1: Uh, Not, not for our profession, at least. I think there's still some more work that needs to be done.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'd say. And so could you tell us a little bit about your follow-up project, what what you're interested in looking
1: at? Sure. So you know, there's there's a couple avenues um, and a couple doors that opened up when we we're working on this. Um, and <clears throat> I think, for example, the, the network adequacy issue and the implications of our findings from our previous paper, we want to investigate those further. And I want to know, like, you know, what's what's going on here in relation to network adequacy? Um, Because that could have real financial implications, you know, for, you know, rates and how services are being conducted. Um, There's also some information about, there's some conversations I've had with folks about private equity firms. And I know there's a lot of private equity firms that appear to be buying up ABA agencies Mm -hmm. and whether they're also using this information to determine market value which once again has financial implications. Um, so I think, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at some preliminary investigations into those areas. Uh, we also want to take a look at the behavior technician, um, taxonomy. And so the tax, that, that the ta- technician taxonomy is kind of an interesting one. Cause as I mentioned earlier, there's no requirement, for example, that you have an RBT to pick that that taxonomy when registering your NPI. But right. there is a requirement that you're supervised by somebody that has a BCBA or license to practice ABA. And so we're trying to figure out a method there that would allow us to come up with some estimates around that and really determine like, well, you have all these technicians here and you know we have all these BCBAs in these states. Is it really feasible to assume that every single BCBA is supervising eight people? or something like that. And so, um we're still working out, you know, the method for trying to make that determination right now.
0: That's awesome. That sounds fascinating. I can't wait to to read it when you put it out. And this whole line of research again, this is something I I've, I've never spent any time thinking about whatsoever. And I saw the paper and and literally I could not put the paper down when I started reading it. I was so drawn into it because of how intriguing and how compelling the story is that you're telling that, Hey, there's an issue, uh, with credentialing in our field or I guess related to our field. And so it's, 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 a horror. It's horrifying. I I don't know a better word to describe (laughs) it. It, to me, it was horrifying as someone who, runs a behavior analysis graduate program and, and obviously helps students become credentialed to see the, the state of credentialing at, at the federal level is, is appalling.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, our profession is relatively young compared to a lot of other, other professions. Um, and I think we really, I, as a field, I think we need to keep an eye on how we're making that transition as we move into federal databases and things like that. And we become more like some of these other professions that have been around for a longer period of time. And so, and ensure that the information that's being reported about us, you know, is does accurately represent where we are as a profession.
0: That makes sense. And, you know, I would hope, I guess I would hope that for this for behavior analysis, but I would hope this, the same isn't true for like medical doctors, people claiming on federal, uh, databases to be medical doctors and so why why would that be the case as, as, as are hoping that that's not true why would we see people claiming to be behavior analysts when they're not I think what you say makes sense in the sense that is, because our field is new people don't realize that it's a its own profession with its own credentialing and its own licensing and you can't simply just claim to be a behavior analyst which I mean historically given our, sort of roots in psychology and, and special ed to an extent. A lot of psychologists, I think, have identified as behavior analysts for a very long time that may or may not be credentialed or what we would now sort of consider to be a behavior analyst with, with the licensing laws and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, there's, you know, and I, I think there certainly is a population there. Um, and that's that's one of the limitations, you know, that we acknowledged is that there certainly is a population there that may have very good training in ABA, um, but may not have, you know, either a BACB credential or a state license. And they may be wonderful at practicing ABA. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure how large that particular group is. The BACB credentials, um, you know, they're, when you pass that test, it's a test of minimal competence, yeah. right? And so, you know, it's kind of it's, it's kind of like, you know, just just get over this little barrier here um, and so we're kind of already starting on a, you know, with, with a relatively low bar yeah, true. Uh, for, for folks. So I don't know, there certainly is a population in there that, you know, may be eligible and be very good at practicing ABA without those credentials. I, 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 I certainly believe that. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, I do wonder if, you know, there's 20,000 of them and I would, <laughs> I would venture to guess probably not.
0: Yeah, I, I would, I would agree with that estimation or that guess. Now you talked about the, your current research project. Are there other areas within this topic that you think other people should start checking out in terms of research that maybe they can begin to do or articles or things that they can read to learn more about this topic?
1: Sure, you know, I think um, as a field, I think this, this particular topical area falls within the realm of quality control. And I think quality control as a very young profession is extremely important right now. We really need to make sure that, you know, what we're doing is represented correctly and that we're doing it ethically and effectively. Right. And so in relation to this particular project, we were talking earlier how, you know, it's kind of a niche area, you know, MPI numbers and behavior analysis. So there, you know, the, the reference list, you know, is a little bit shorter um, there was a great article by Bindman in 2013, and he does a really good job uh, describing and providing an overview of the MPI system. Awesome. And honestly, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, their websites, mm-hmm. um, they have um, really good descriptions in terms of, you know, what the NPI is and why it was implemented and what's collected on it. The Washington Publishing Company website, that's the group that actually maintains and publishes the taxonomy mm-hmm. descriptions. And so, and that gets updated twice a year. April first was the last time it should have been updated. Um, and so, those are some places to start. But I would, I would encourage folks just generally to look at issues related to quality control in our field. Um, I think there's, um, you know, quality in our training programs and quality in the services that we're providing. I think that's an area that's ripe for research, and it's something that we really need to be keeping an eye on.
0: Yeah, I think that makes sense, and I also think you know, one of the kind of calls to actions I was thinking about when reading this was, at least for myself, I need to check my MPI registration uh, and make sure that's up to date. Uh, Not to say that that's going to fix the issue because it's not a behavior analyst issue necessarily, but if we are better about updating our stuff and maybe advocating it within the organizations we work to, hopefully word gets around and people take the updating of that information a little bit more seriously.
1: Yeah, and don't feel bad about that. I actually had to update mine when I was working on this. It's like, oh, I gotta. (laughs) You found yourself in the
0: database, and you're like, wait a second, (laughs) that doesn't add up. I've gotta, I gotta fix that.
1: Oh, I had the right taxonomy. It was the um, the other stuff that was that was uh, incorrect. The address. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: I don't. I don't know that I've updated my address since grad school either. So shame on me. Yeah. So I know what I'm doing. So after this. Yeah, I know what I'm doing after this interview. I, I and I hope that people listening will will do the same and and to learn more about this topic. It and check out the paper as well. The the paper uh, really really easy read and just looking at the numbers and looking at the 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 tables that you put in the graphs that you put in really help bring this to life. It's an important topic for the reasons we talked about, it. and so thank you for doing the research, when I was looking at the just the raw numbers, and I'm an Excel geek, and and, you know, I was kind of imagining the different type of formulas you'd probably have to use for something like this. I was overwhelmed with the thought of how much work this truly had to be. I mean, a lot of people work with large data sets, but we're talking, like you said, 50,000 people or something like that of names you're going to have to sort through. And so thanks for taking the time to do that and drawing attention to something I've never heard anyone in our field bring up before. And so this, I think, is a, is a new area of concern that um, I'm happy to now be aware
1: of. So thank you. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to put a, put a spotlight on it. And uh, thank you very much for the interview.
0: All right, before you go too far, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use. Find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent bat papers that we should review. Links are found in our show notes. Finally, I'd like to thank a few people for help making this podcast. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of Behavior Analysis and Practice, The Journal. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin, and my production assistants for this episode, Beyonce Ferrucci and Taylor Reinho. Finally, thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast.